Welcome to Southern Fried Fantasy, a podcast for readers and writers, where Southern authors talk about books set in the region they call home. Book lovers beware, your TBR pile is about to get taller than high cotton. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Southern Fried Fantasy. I'm your host, Bob Magoo of Tales by Bob. And this week, I am super excited to have on Betty Bolt. All right. Am I saying that right? It's Bolty. Bolty. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, so super glad that you were able to come on. Um, you are another author that I met at the big author event in Montgomery recently. Yes, that was a great event. It was. I was. I was like, "What is this doing in Montgomery? Come on now!" <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it was fantastic. Lots, lots, of, lots of good readers and, and fans, and it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was just a just a ton of great authors there. So I was uh, and got got to meet a couple of folks that I I knew, like uh, Kimber Swain, like uh, kind of known her a little bit before, and finally got to meet her and stuff like that. So it was just a Great time all around and was super excited to, to stumble onto your stuff. So why don't uh, we take a moment, just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what ties you to the South. Okay. Um, I am, I was born and raised in Maryland, which technically is a Southern state, although a lot of people will disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. And um, ha- after marrying um, my husband, and I, my husband was a contractor for SAIC. So we moved around a bit. We've lived in um, Georgia and Tennessee and now Alabama. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've lived in the South now for mm, 25 years, yeah. I guess. Um, and the last 20 of it here in the North Alabama area. Um, my husband's been more, actually 28 years. He, he said he's been working in this area. So it's, we've been here a while. Yeah. 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 Um, it, it's uh, nice that you've kind of got a little bit of variety, you know, a little bit of Georgia, some Tennessee, some Alabama. Obviously, I'm I'm partial to Alabama being there from from there myself. Um, and so uh, I I my undergrad is in anthropology and I have a minor in history. And part of what kind of drew me to your books is you work so much history into your book series. So mm-hmm. what? If you could take a take a little time and just tell us about you know the books that you that you write. Well, um, I have several different series. My my interests aren't all in one area because I I just <laughs> I'm a little more eclectic than that. Um, yeah, there's a lot so of history out there. So <laughs> there really is. There really is. Uh, the first series that I wrote was historical romance set during the American Revolution in Charleston. Um, the More Perfect Union series. Um, that, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the American Revolution time period. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, though, even though it's written about uh, or during the wartime, I don't write about the war so much as the people surviving the war, trying, yeah. you know, how they went about their lives in spite of the war. And part of the, those series, um, Charleston was um, besieged by the British for a period of time. And so that's the time period of my series. I wanted to explore what life would have been like in Charleston with the British in control instead of, um, you know, the South Carolina government. Yeah. So, so I have that one. And then 
Um, the series I'm working on now, I've about finished the last two books in the series, the Theory Falls Inn series, is set in 1821 North Alabama in a haunted roadside inn off of Winchester Road. And so in order to write that one, I had to get to know Alabama's history, which is, has a, um, there was a lot for me to know because I'm, again, I'm not from Alabama. So it wasn't something I was taught in high school or school or anything. Yes. But but I am fortunate that we have here in Huntsville, there's the um, bird on the mountain living um, history museum, I guess, or, Mm -hmm. or site where you can go actually see buildings from the 1800s and um, what they looked like, how they were constructed, all of that. So I visited there. And then yeah. there's the um, Constitution Village in Huntsville mm-hmm. actually has um, the Stephen Neal House. Stephen Neal is the first sheriff of Madison County. And okay. they have the building. Um, I'm not sure if it's a replica or if it's the actual building. I don't remember at this point, but it, they have a building where the first post office was located Yeah, in Huntsville. So I got to see how that was laid out and all of that you're going to find in my, in my stories as part of the setting and the conversation that they have. It's not, yeah. I mean, Stephen Neal is in the book because he was the sheriff at the time of my yeah. story. <laughs> so I do try and bring in as much authentic, accurate history woven into the story as I can. It's not, it's not about the fighting and stuff. It's about living and, yeah. and how, you, how you got along. I love that. And then, yeah. And then um, I've also written a World War II Homefront Baltimore that was inspired by the correspondence, wartime and post-war correspondence between my parents as they were courting um, oh. up until they got married. So, Oh, that's awesome. Um, so that was, that was a work of heart right there yeah. to do that one. Um, and then I have Becoming Lady Washington, which is a first person account of her life from when she had her debut to society um, until she dies. So it's, it spans about 50 years in the, in the 1700s. So, and each one of those, I've done extensive research um, either in person through, through books, through um, archived books online, Google archive or whatever. And, um, I've done a lot of research for becoming Lady Washington in particular yeah. because there was just so much to know. I mean, you don't really hear much about her. No, you, know? you don't. Uh, so, uh, when you were in Montgomery, did you get a chance to go by Old Alabama ch- Town by any by any chance? I did not. Um, if, if you find yourself in Montgomery, I, th- I think you would really appreciate it. It's uh, it's you know it's in downtown it's it's very uh, out of place it's in downtown montgomery but it's several blocks of uh you know antebellum homes uh and you know churches and just a bunch of like restored buildings and things like that just real okay. real full of history right uh, um and uh, it, it's just a it's a great uh, it's one of those uh uh field trip destinations like pretty much every kid in the region um goes there like during fourth grade to go you, you go see old alabama town so right. um okay. yeah it's it's a, it's a cool place so right. other thing right. i think i read that you visited uh cal the Calpins battlefield oh yes i have yeah uh so my family's real big on uh, family history and uh 
our ancestors, the the our branch of the Magoos, uh, actually sailed into Charleston, and we had a uh, ancestor that fought at Calpins. So um, I see. Okay. So so just and then you know they <laughs> they they quickly left and wound up in Alabama. <laughs> so um, yeah, but kind of a neat little connection there. So um, and. Uh, your stuff is very historical, but I know like, uh, especially in the, uh, the Fury Falls, you work in like a bit of the paranormal, right? Cause it's this haunted roadside end, correct? Yes. This series, I, I, when I started to write this series, I wanted to combine my three loves and that's the, the supernatural the ghosts and witches, um, the historical and romance. And so there is romance woven through this historical haunted house. <laughs> kind yeah. Of thing. So it's been a lot of fun to write. Yeah. So as you were writing these, um, were there elements of Southern culture that you kind of felt it was important to, to show and how did you go about doing that? I think the, um, the welcoming nature of most of the Southern people I've encountered is one thing that I have tried to include where they're, they're, even if they're not sure about the person who's arrived at the end, they're still welcoming them. They they don't kick them out kind of thing. They still welcome that Southern hospitality kind of aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't, I didn't include much of the uh, vernacular that I hear currently living in in Alabama because I'm not sure how recent that is. So I try to keep, that's another thing that I do. I try and keep my language authentic to the time. And that, you know, obviously evolves as technology evolves and capabilities evolve in, um, in our society. So, mm-hmm. I mean, things like words you wouldn't even think of that we use all the time didn't exist in the 1700s, yeah. you know. So there are, um, there. I have this, um, what's it called? It's called the... OED, the Oxford English Dictionary. I yeah. have a, a database of that. I don't have them in print because they're a lot. They're, they're a oh, lot yeah. of books. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I could look and see what the etymology of the word is so I can determine A, did it exist at that time period? And B, was it used in that sense? Because sometimes it's a, a actual word and sometimes it's a um like a slang or an inference of that mm-hmm. word, you know, that yeah. something that actually happened. I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but um, sometimes well, we then like iota. Okay. The Greek letter iota. I got, mm-hmm. I got an example. Um, I looked this up to be sure, because I wasn't, I was using it and I wanted to make sure it was valid. And it is iota is a Greek letter. It's the I, the small I. And so, therefore, it's a small letter, and it's the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. And so, when you say not one iota, that's what they're yeah. referring to. That's not like one i, though. It's the inferred uh, definition that it's not one small thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So, no. when in writing, in writing Becoming Lady Washington, that became an issue with the language, not an issue, but a concern of mine. As I as so that the language matured along with the 
the the story progressing through the century. Yeah. So the, so you'll have different words appearing at the end in the latter half of the novel than you do at the beginning, only because the technology allowed for that. You know, yeah. the advancement of a technology at that time. So that was that was something I was trying to. I probably missed some because some of the words you just don't even think to check because <laughs> well, so ubiquitous to us. You know, I feel like these these books are going to be you know uh, a linguist's you know uh, fantasy. You know, just no, you, you're the only author I've talked to that has, pays that attention to, to detail. Uh, I think that's that's fantastic. Uh, it's definitely not something that I think most people consider. Um, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think it, but I'm like I say, I'm trying to immerse the reader into that time period and, and the language is part of that. So yeah. I, I try. I'm not sure that I'm, I'm not perfect, <laughs> probably, but you know. Well, uh, I got to say, the talking about the Oxford English Dictionary, I read a fascinating book about it called The, uh, the Professor and the Madman. I don't know if you've heard of it. I haven't heard uh, of that one, no. So uh, there, there's, uh, one guy who like holds the record for the most uh, words uh, submit like early. Cause for those who aren't aware the Oxford English dictionary, it as part of it, it tells you like the first time that it appears it, it like in print. In, in English. In print, yeah. yeah. And uh, there is this one guy who uh, when they were starting to do this, they asked for submissions like, Hey, you know, we're trying to figure out these words, you know, the earliest use of them help us out. And it was kind of one of the first instances, real instances of like crowdsource, you know, um, project like that. And there was mm-hmm. one guy who like held the record for, he had the most uh, accepted submissions. Like he tracked down the earliest uses of a ton of words. Uh, and this one professor who was working on it, like, went to like go find this guy out it turns out uh he was in a uh a mental institution um he was uh he had severe you know he was severely uh mentally unwell uh Hmm. and it was just a fascinating book uh kind of viewing these two different very different people who were experts with words and how they kind of came together came to work together just really really good interesting uh book if you if you love words and dictionaries. Oh, I do. I do love words. I, I think, yeah. I, I think that, uh, you know, you think about how they went about finding out when the first <laughs> occurrence in print was, you know, yeah. that's, that's quite a detective job right there. Oh yeah. No, it, uh, it, it's one of those, such, such a monumental task, like that the fact that anyone even thought to even attempt it. And then not only was it attempted, but they did it. Like it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's super impressive. It is. Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, I like to ask where authors get their ideas from, but uh, that's, that's a cliche question. And so kind of what I'm looking for here is obviously you, you draw on a lot of history for, for ideas, but what I'm kind of looking for here is where's the line? Do you draw on events from your own life and work them into the book? Do you try and keep a, keep a clear separation from, no, my, my books, there's very little of me in them. They're, they're their own work. That, that's kind of what I'm, I'm, I, I like to drive at with that question. Um, yeah, there, there's not a whole lot of, of events from my life in my work. I mean, there's probably my viewpoint on certain things, uh, you know, or, 
my experiences perhaps so that like um, if one of the characters is grieving, I'll pull from my experience with grief and, and to, to make the, um, to be able to describe that character's yeah. um, experience. But generally, you know, even with the Fury Falls Inn uh, in particular, I had a couple of um, different histories of Alabama. And so I, I read through there taking notes on different events that happened in Alabama and sort of made a timeline of when things happened in, the, in North Alabama that I could then refer to in the story. And that would have, in some cases, um, maybe have influenced the action or the plot in the story. Yeah. Um, for instance, in the, in the, one of the books that I've just written, I'm trying to think of which one of them I'm ready. I'm getting ready to re release the last two books. And if you falls in at the same time <laughs> yeah. in August. So I'm, I'm in the process of finalizing both of them right now. And so I don't remember where I put this. Oh <laughs> yeah. No, I, oh, I know that. And you know, people who aren't writers will probably be befuddled at the fact that it, that becomes an issue for authors. But I know me, like, uh, you know, I've got several books out in this, in, in my series and it gets, Oh, what book was that in? And, you know, mm -hmm. and I wrote, I wrote the damn thing, <laughs> you know, exactly. Exactly. but it, well, when you write well, enough words, it gets blurry. It does. One, one of the things that I, I found that I stumbled upon this and I was looking to see who was the postmaster general in 18, in, in particular in October of 1821, I wanted to verify that I had the right name because I wanted my character to go into the post office and interact with the postmaster. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the postmaster changed in October and shortly after that moved the location of the post office from where it is in my story to another location in downtown Huntsville. Mm. So I'm glad I looked it up because I could include that then Hey, I'm going to, I'm so-and-so, I'm the new postmaster and I'm going to be moving this, moving the post office yeah. as soon as I get a location. So watch the newspaper for that. Notice. Yeah. So yeah. That's in there. So that kind of um, events that happened real in real life I'm, are in my stories. Cause I think that gives them again, that authenticity of, of the setting of the times and, and what the people were doing. Yeah. I have a, I have an interesting uh, little anecdote that you may be able to use. So, um, that a, a lot of uh, work has been done on chattels, chattel records. Which, for those who don't know, um, used to when someone died, uh, the, the count like if there was no will, the county would basically log everything and then auction it off. And so, because of the slave trade. And, you know, research into, you know, African-American history. There's been a lot of work done on slave chattel records. Okay. But there, there hasn't been as much done on the kind of mundane, random stuff that people owned. And my professor at the time was like, I think there's something here. I think he's like, he, he took me and another student, like, y'all go down to the library and like, let's do the 1820s and y'all just start looking at chattel records and just start writing down, you know, what, what people had. And we, we looked at, I think it was like eight or 10 chattel records. And of that, 
like four or five of them had waffle makers, mm-hmm. which was baffling. Like, I was like, it never would have occurred to me that even one person would have a waffle maker, but I don't know if a, a, a traveling waffle <laughs> waffle iron salesman had passed through Pike County, Alabama at some point in recent memory <laughs> or, or what, but like uh, it was com- apparently very common for people to have waffle makers. Uh, <laughs> Who, who knew, you know, and th- there's so many little things like that that I just wonder that are just lying out there waiting for us to rediscover and, you know, then mine to put in our stories. <laughs> <laughs> seeing the, seeing the list of um, the inventory of items um, after someone has died that they then are going to auction off. That's quite a variety of things. That's very true. It is. It, 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 it can get bewildering at times. And it, it was very, we ended up not doing anything with it. Um, it was a little close to us graduating to really kind of tackle a project of that mm-hmm. scope, but mm-hmm. I kind of wish we had, cause it was, it was really, it was a really neat kind of, kind of project. Uh, so, all right. Anyway, that was weird aside. So, um, <laughs> okay. uh, so do you, what kind of uh, do you draw on like Southern folklore for any of the supernatural um, paranormal events in your books? And if so, kind of like without, without spoilers, you know, if you can uh, kind of relay a little bit of what you might've drawn on. Well, I've read a book about, I've read books about Alabama and about ghost stories. I've done the ghost walks. Um, I don't draw specifically from any of that, but I do, mm-hmm. um, I keep that in mind as I'm writing just kind of the kinds of things that I've, I've, I've been experiencing because Huntsville has a, in October, they do the ghost walk tours of like the old, old district, you know, um, yeah. gosh, the name of it just went out of my head. That's really bad. Um, no, I, Twickenham, I've been to Huntsville. Twickenham, Twickenham okay. is the historic district in Huntsville. Um but you know, so they do they do those kind of walks and stuff, and um, we've done it a couple of times, my husband and I, and it's always interesting. I, the last time we did it, though, I was kind of I don't know how much of that was just made up, <laughs> <So> <laughs> it, it just seemed kind of lame, you know. But yeah, um, yeah, so maybe, maybe I was just in the wrong mindset, <laughs> I'm not sure. You know yeah. how that goes. Oh, yeah, no, uh, I know. Growing up here, you know, 13 Alabama ghosts and Jeffrey was kind of the big, the big ghost thing around here. I, I don't know if you've ever seen those, but um, they were uh, ended up being a pretty lengthy series. Uh, she ended up as a woman named, I think, Catherine Tucker Wyndham was her name, but she would collect, uh, you know, ghost stories from uh, eventually it was all across the Southeast and uh apparently her house was haunted by a ghost named Jeffrey. And so, uh, so it'd be 13 Alabama ghosts and Jeffrey or 13 Mississippi ghosts and Jeffrey, that kind of stuff. It was a, it was a good series. And, but it was one of those, uh, it was neat to see the stories that were kind of in your area. So the, the, I think it was like 13 more Alabama ghosts and Jeffrey was like the second book in that series. Um, there was uh, uh, a haunted house in Troy, which was uh, where I went to college. And uh, uh, 
doing the research to piece together which was that actual house in in town was a lot of fun uh and then come to find out uh a friend of mine his cousin uh had actually briefly lived in that house um and attested to the fact that it was in fact haunted so it's just kind of a kind of neat and you know it's uh, i do feel like a lot of places they kind of steer into like once a place gets a reputation as haunted they kind of play a little fast and loose to kind of amp things up sometimes. Yeah. But yeah. I have a friend who lives in Decatur and mm-hmm. she was, she told me the story of she was, her neighbor had to go out of town and she wanted, she wanted my friend to take care of her cat while she was gone. And so she went over, you know, unlocked the door, went inside and, um, that house was haunted by a little boy and he didn't like the fact that she was there and chased her out of the house and slammed the door behind her. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that would be the end of my uh, house watching experience. <laughs> yeah, that, I think so too. My, my brother used to live in a house also in Maryland where they would close. There was a, a stairs a month from the kitchen up into an attic and they would close the door to the attic and they would go to bed and they get up in the morning. It would be open. Yeah. So, yeah. They, they, and there was only two of them living in the house and they went to bed. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Uh, so uh, mentioning Maryland again, I want to say this earlier. You, you commented on uh, that Maryland about Maryland being a Southern state. And I think it's something that's very interesting to me. Uh, how, uh, how quick certain areas of the South are to totally write off other areas of the South. <laughs> uh, uh, like, you know, everyone, you know, everyone says, well, Florida, Florida is not the South, you know? Um, and uh, I've many times over the years I've heard, well, no, Texas, Texas isn't the South, you know, they're, they're their own thing or something like that, you know? <laughs> yes. And to, to me, it's uh, and like, I, I talk with a, an author fairly frequently that, that whenever this podcast comes up, you know, she lives in Oklahoma and uh, she's like, oh, well, I count. And it's one of those like, now I'm, I'm, I will play fast and loose with what's Southern or not Oklahoma. That's, that's perhaps a bridge too far, but. Uh, um, my, my sister lives in Oklahoma and I don't think she's ever said she lives in the South. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah no. I, I do think there are some cultural similarities, but, uh, but no, but that's something like, you know, and it really just depends. And um I've known a lot of people that are like, yes, Maryland very much is in the South. And then a lot of people are like, well, no, it's very much not in the South, you know, and just how people are just so arbitrary and drawing, drawing their lines, you know, um, yeah, is, is well, interesting Mason, to me. Mason, Mason and Dixon drew that line. That's why I'm saying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, but no. And so that's something like I, I, I don't, as far as I'm aware, I don't know anyone from Maryland. Um, so maybe you can speak to that a little bit as someone who's lived in Maryland and lived in the South. Uh, how do, how culturally, how would you kind of uh, compare the two? Um, Maryland is more of a mix uh, of there, you know, cause it's right there by Pennsylvania and, yeah. and people tend to go from Maryland up into Pennsylvania and, and, you know, to Philadelphia and such. So there's, there just seems to be more of a, a mix even during the civil war it was like split you know as to yeah. um who was union and who was rebel within the state so it was 
I, I, th I can see why a lot of Southern people, you know, why a lot of people from the deep South are like, no, uh -uh. yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, technically it is. So, yeah. Well, know. it's, it's one of those, now, now granted, I'm not, um, I've not, I'm not from Texas. I'm not from Florida. Um, I am from Alabama and I just wonder how much of it is that like deep South elitism, I guess is like, well, no one argues that Alabama ain't the South, you know? <laughs> right. And exactly. I, I don't know how much of that comes into, into play, <laughs> into play. Um, so, uh, but okay. Yeah. And that, that's something that, uh, you know, I haven't spent much time in Maryland. I, we did some like battlefield tours kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was much younger and that was about the extent of it. Um, but so, okay. So just kind of interesting to hear. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like if, you know, you're, you're as Southern as you say you are, it's, it's what's in your heart that counts. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. But I, yeah. I, you can probably tell, though, I do not have a Southern accent. People know that. You know, the yeah. first question they ask me when I open my mouth is, so where are you from? Because, you know, <laughs> you're not from the South. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I, and it's one of those like it, it's uh, I don't have a strong Southern accent. Not not really. Yeah. Like now, if I'm outside the South, yes, people notice it. But I, I've actually even been, oh, are, are you from here? And yeah, I, I very much am. Uh, mm -hmm. But my, my mom is not, uh, she was born in Hawaii and uh, you know, you, you inherit, you don't inherit, but you, you, you know, you, your accent is somewhat learned uh, early on from your parents. And sure. uh, my, my mom did not have a Southern accent at all and learning, you know, language from her to this day, I don't have that super pronounced Southern accent. So Right. Uh, don't don't be upset everyone <laughs> even those of us who've lived here our whole life sometimes get asked that <laughs> yeah. okay <laughs> so um so uh the first half of this i you know is kind of geared more for the readers out there um so the back half i, I like to kind of gear it more for the writers out there so uh, i'd love to hear kind of what's your process are you more of a plotter more of a pantser and i feel like as much attention to detail in history, I'm guessing you probably come down more on the, the plotting side of things. Yes. I'm, I'm, I, I plot out actually do what I call scene beats that mm -hmm. um, I figure out um, what needs to happen and then figure out in what order it needs to happen and then lay out a timeline as to when it's going to happen who's in the scene, what the emotional arc is and all of that. And I get that all settled. It's just a very high level, like a few, a few sentences for the scene description and just a list of characters and location and that kind of thing. It's not an, an in-depth outline. It's just something to keep me on track so I can, I can see the whole story arc before I start writing. And then I just write scene by scene. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I write a scene usually one to two scenes each morning. I work from eight to noon generally. Mm -hmm. And um, I write one or two scenes and then I go about doing other tasks, you know, the marketing and promo and errands yeah. and all of that stuff. And I don't go back unless I think of something that I needed to change or tweak. I mean, I, and I mean like 
in the in the content of the story, not like word choice or something. Yeah. But I needed somebody to say something else that I didn't have them say. I'll go back and add that. But beyond that, I don't I don't look back until I finish. Yeah. And then and then I'll do a second draft and, and try and stitch things together better. And then it goes out to beta readers and they tell me what they think. And yeah. that, that's where I'm at right now is incorporating the beta reader feedback. And um, I did a few more drafts in there. Typically I do two. This time I did three on one of them and four on the other. Just to, um, between, the, between those drafts, I've started doing this thing that I read about in a screenwriting um, for novelist manual where you take the scenes and you put them just write down a, a quick sentence or a phrase as to what happens in that scene on like three by five cards or what have you, and then lay them out on your table and then see where there are gaps in the, um, the buildup and the climaxes and, and you know, the, the flow of the story and then add those in. And that seems that visualizing it that way helps me with making sure I don't have real big holes in the yeah. story. I haven't so, heard that method before, but I like that. And um, I have a background in adult education and uh, a large part of the, the learning there was learning how, how different people are different types of learners, you know, uh, and like some, some people are more visual, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so for those of you that are out there that may be struggling with your outlining or things like that, this sounds like a, a, a great method to try, you know, I mean, what's the worst that'll happen, you know, <laughs> that you, you spend right. a little time making some note cards. Like, no, yeah. I, I think, I think it's uh, definitely a, a neat process. So I, I like that. Yep. It, it, it really does help me get out of my head and see the, see the flow and not yeah. just on a, on a piece of paper on the screen, not on the screen. I mean, so yeah, I, I have found that very, very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so for the the writers that are out there that are, you know, they haven't finished that first novel, maybe they're struggling. Um, what is, uh, what is some advice that you would give them? Um, the, you know, in order to write a novel, you just have to sit down and, and tell your story. And um, then you, you can fix it if, if there are problems with it. But if you don't write it down, there's nothing to fix. So, you know, it's not, it's not always just in the writing, but in the rewriting and the revisions and getting feedback from other, other writers of your readers um, who are avid readers of your genre, whatever you're writing so that yeah. you can get quality feedback, not just, yeah, I love it. That's not helpful. Yeah. That, <laughs> I, I think that that's some um, advice that I think uh, part of that, that I, I like to really drill into people is like, asking your friends to read your manuscript is all well and good. But if, you know, if you've written a epic fantasy novel and you get your mom to read it, but all she reads is Stephen King or, you know, John Grisham, you know, she might mm -hmm. like it, but she doesn't read the genre that you're writing for. And she's not going to know if you're hitting the beats that you need to hit for that genre. Right. There, there are expectations. The reader, the readers of, of certain genres have expectations of what they're going to find in that story. Yeah. So, you know, if you're writing a cozy mystery and you don't have a murder, then there's a problem. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, do, uh, do you have any advice for uh, getting 
beta readers. I know that's something that a lot of authors really struggle with uh, to the point where most end up, I feel like end up giving up on that, that, that step of the process. Um, my beta readers, I, I pull from different groups that I belong to. So, I mean, I'm, I have a, um, an online, like, I don't know, accountability group, I guess. And yeah. we, we do, we do writing sprints. We do sprints and then take a break and chat and stuff. And so I'll put out there, you know, Hey, I'm looking for beta readers, anybody interested. And if, if they have time, then, you know, one or two of them may say, yes. Um, I'll ask writers uh, that I know that read what I write. Um, my, my daughter and my husband are both avid readers and they read for me, but they also know that I want to know. <laughs> yeah. I don't want them to tell me that it's all good. I want them to tell me what leads to be, what needs to be clearer or strengthened or, you know, whatever they find. So, yeah. Um, so I, I typically try and have six beta readers um, mm-hmm. and one or two of them being somebody who hasn't read me before or hasn't been reading this series that I'm working on so that I'm going to make uh. sure that each of the stories in my series is a standalone story. So that if somebody picks up book five, they won't get enjoyment out of the story, but, the, but they may think, wait, something else has been happening. I want to go back and read the rest of it. Yeah. You know, okay. but at least that, I can enjoy that story. That's fantastic. That's something I had never considered. Um, I think that's a really excellent tip. Uh, definitely. Because, you know, I feel like a lot of people who do get the beta readers, they they tend to just go back to the same people over and over, you know, because it, mm-hmm. it can it can really be a struggle to find beta readers. And so when you you find some and especially find some that you trust what they have to say, you know, it it's easy to just stick with them. But I, I think that probably really pays dividends for you to to take that extra step of finding new people for each book. I, I just, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know for a fact, but I, I just, I can't see how it wouldn't be a tremendous help. Yeah. I, I think it, I, I find it very helpful personally because I get um, a variety of feedback. And one thing I will say, the more um, people you have read for you, you're going to get different, viewpoints and they'll, they'll point out different things. Um, take all, each of those into consideration, but only the ones that are, that are consistent across, you know, if all, everybody says, well, this is a weak ending, then you need to really look at the, pay attention to that and fix it because obviously they all agree yeah. on that. Um, I'm, I'm going through the comments and some, uh, I have a, a really good friend who's a, an author and she writes fantasy and she read it and she said, you need to do something more here. And I was like, yeah, I do. And my husband said the same thing. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I know. I got this. I, I got to fix that. But so, you know, it's not, it's not a matter of writing perfectly the first time. It's a matter of writing the best you can and then getting feedback to help you figure out where it needs to be strengthened or clarified or cut out even sometimes you don't you, you might have a scene in there that's not doing anything it's just taking up word count yeah and and that's happened um i'm also an editor i edit for other other writers and mm. um there was one lady that she was she had written this short story but um there was an entire scene in there i'm like you know this isn't this didn't <laughs> it's not um helping your story along is just taking up word count. You could probably cut that out and not miss it. 
and she did and then you don't miss it at all yeah so yeah keep that in mind too oh yeah there really is a there's an artistry to knowing when to listen to what someone is saying and when to uh to to just put that advice to the side you know uh i know having been a part of a lot of writing groups um you run into the situation where someone is just really stretching, just really, really nitpicking just because they want to say something, you know, and Mm -hmm. you can kind of tell when that's happening. And so maybe they have a legitimate point. Maybe they're just stretching so that they can, you know, be a part of the conversation. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's not the most, uh, the advice you really need to hone in on, you know, (laughs) <laughs> right. And and also keep in mind that if you know people have their likes and dislikes, their their preferences of what they want to read. So if what you've written is something that they don't enjoy, they may give you bad advice about. Oh, um, definitely. You know, there I, I don't, you know, a lot of um people are rather snide about romance and you know, call it, you know, trash literature and that kind of thing. And, and it's far from that. But yeah. they, they don't read it, so they don't know. And right. They put it down without even knowing what they're talking about. I had a, <laughs> she's a friend now, but it was a, a lady that I met at, at college, one of the first days of the new semester. And we've been talking about what we've been doing over the summer. And I said, well, I finished writing a romance and blah, blah, blah. And um, she was like, oh, I don't read romance. This, this was a this was working on, I was taking classes for a master's in history at UAH and I'm I never went I never completed it but that's a different story um she was like oh I don't read that you know kind of thing yeah. and I said well you know I write that yeah <laughs> and, and she like said well okay you know and and just kind of looked at me askance and the next week when we got back together as I got off the elevator, hadn't even gotten into the classroom. She was sitting in the chairs in the um, the lobby of the elevator, and she said, "Betty, when I'm wrong, I'm I apologize just as loudly, you know." Because she said, "Because I write it," she went and read some and yeah. realized that it isn't trash and that it is well written and there is a good story there. Yeah, and so she apologized, and and so now she reads for me. You know, she's a friend. Yeah. She reads. So, I mean, I just think um, if and a lot of people I have a, I'm in a lot of different groups. Okay. So there's um, the Heart of Dixie Fiction Writers meets at the Decatur Public Library. And one of the librarians there, an outreach librarian, um, she told me that so many times people say, well, I don't read romance. And she says, do you read Nora Roberts? I go, well, yeah, well, then you read romance. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Well, so they it, don't even realize what their what their the genre is that they're reading. Yeah, no. Uh, case in point, uh, my my lady friend, uh, big Nora Roberts fan, and uh, I mean, I'll read anything, but I will admit, I have not traditionally read romance, and uh, much more of a kind of a sci fi fantasy kind of guy. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm open to read anything, and I really like horror. And, uh, but I very much had in my mind that, well, Nora Roberts, she's a romance writer. Like I get that she's huge. Um, I mean, romance is the most popular genre. Um, but it was, 
you know, it's not one of those I ever felt the need to go read her. And uh, my lady friend, as you know, she got to know me better. She's like, no, you, you really need to read um, the, like, I think it's called the stones of power or the seven stones or uh, something. Ser- I, I can't remember the name of the series now, but it was a trilogy. And mm-hmm. I was like, I, I mean, yeah, I'll try it, you know? And uh, yes, there is romance to it. There's a, a strong thread of romance to it, but it was almost like reading uh, it by Stephen King, almost like there were, <laughs> there were some yeah. real horror elements to that. And it was really good. I've really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. She's got, she's an excellent storyteller. She, she writes in, in different, different subgenres of romance. You know, she's got the fantasy romance and she's got the romantic suspense. And I mean, she, she does write different kinds of stories and, uh, I tell you, you want an example of excellent writing, read Nora Roberts because yeah. she is an excellent writer and prodigious. Like it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's unreal how, how her output, you know, including mm-hmm. like not just her stuff under her name, but like the JD Robb series is up to like over 50, right. 60 books now or something like that. It's crazy. You know? Yeah, it is crazy. Oof, jealous. Way more than I, way more than I've done. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, jealous. My mm-hmm. uh, my lady friend, uh, she really wants us to take a trip to go stay at the uh, the the inn, like the yes. bed and breakfast, mm-hmm. the bed and breakfast place. Uh, that's like based that's on Bo- Boonesboro, Maryland. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah. And so I, th- I I think at some point we're going to take a trip up there and uh, I, I guess I'll have to read that series before I go, but uh, uh, I'm always down for any sort of book based trip. So, uh, Oh, Oh darn have to go to a cool place, a cool yes. bed and breakfast. Just hate that. <laughs> that. That was the fun thing about writing the more perfect union series is that it's set in Charleston and outside of Charleston. So my husband and I went there twice for research. We stayed at the Rutledge house, um, um bnb or so the, yeah. the, i forget which rutledge it was they lived across the street from each other and one of them i think we were in the brother's house um but that's the bnb but the other rutledge was the governor of south carolina during the revolution so huh. we got to stay in an american revolution era home yeah and, and experience you know the sounds and the layout and all of that so that that helped inform my stories and we did the American Revolution walking tour of Charleston, which was really fun. Yeah. Seeing all the old homes and buildings and stuff. Yeah. So no, yeah. That, uh, uh, that sounds awesome. Uh, it's good to be able to combine, combine a business and pleasure like that, you know? It is. One of, the, one of the best parts of that trip was going to the tavern. It was called, um, now see, in other words, got out my mind, McCarty yeah. Tavern, I think, or something like that. And um, it was a place where George Washington actually ate when he visited South Carolina, when he visited Charleston after becoming president. But during the, during COVID, they ended up closing down, but the building is a historic location. So I don't know what's going to happen. So if they'll open another restaurant there or what they'll do. The last time I checked the website, it was just shuttered for now. Yeah. Well, hopefully someone gets that back going. I feel like there's an opportunity there. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, uh, like I said earlier, uh, or I believe I said earlier, I, I have a, a degree in music industry, so I, I love, I love music. And I always like to ask, uh, authors, 
do you play music when you write? And if so, what? When I was writing the A More Perfect Union series, I had picked up some 18th century music on CD. Um, mm -hmm. It was obviously played, you know, more contemporary now than, than <laughs> from the 1800s yeah. or 1700s. But I did play that in the background while I was writing that series. Um, for uh, beyond that, though, I just have the radio on on yeah. like light rock kind of mix. Um, yeah. It's just background noise. It's really not, um, not it's not a playlist as yeah. such. Just, just something on. Yeah. No, I, it just it's something that interests me. Just the the. You know, some people are like, no, I've, it's got to be utterly silent. Other people are like, oh, I have a playlist for every character, you know? And, <laughs> yes. And yes. Uh, it, it, it's always fun to, fun to hear. So, like, you know, when you, when you said that it has to be utterly quiet, that is so opposite of what I have because I'll be writing, I have the radio on, I have both of my email accounts up so that if somebody reaches out to me, I'm aware of it. I have yeah. this accountability group. Um, site up i have facebook up <laughs> yeah. I, and i think it's a result of when i was working um while my kids were in college and my dad was in assisted living i had to go back to work full-time to help make ends meet right yeah and um i was working for saic at the nasa marshall space flight center here in huntsville as a tech writer and editor um, for the Space Launch System Program Office, the new rocket yeah. that they're getting ready to launch. And I was on an integration team is what it was called. And so I had to be available. And I learned how to multitask that way. And if I cut off, then I worry that I'm missing something. Yeah. So then I can't concentrate. <laughs> so yeah, it's just different. Yeah, no, I feel that. And uh, especially like, I, I feel like a lot of people uh, who want to be authors, you know, uh, I think there's a common misconception for folks that's getting started out that uh, all you have to do is write the book and then, you know, you, some, you'll find someone to publish it for you. And that that's really all you have to, to learn. Um, but even if you are traditionally published, uh, spoiler, uh, unless you're incredibly special, um, there's going to be no marketing budget for your book. They're going to count on you to be one of the primary marketers for your own book. Um, and you just have to learn so many hats as a, as an author. And I know me just uh, having built up my, my brand over the past decade, uh, I definitely fall more into your camp, you know, where I, I do try and kind of mitigate some of the distractions when I'm trying to write Um uh, but I also, I also tend to write in shorter bursts. Like I, uh, you know, I'll write typically 30 minutes to an hour every day. Um, so I, you know, I can go 30 minutes without keeping a close eye on, on stuff, but yeah, no, it's, you, and you never know when an opportunity is going to come and you'd hate to miss out on it, you know, because you were just slow on the uptake. Right. Um, so I, I definitely commiserate with what you're saying about, no, I got to have, I got to have this up, this up, this up. And yeah, I, I feel that. Yeah. Cause you never know. I mean, sometimes you get a, you know, did you know this link is broken? Oh goodness. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you got to do something about fixing that quickly. 
Yeah, just letting it sit there. So yeah. It's it it's one of those I want to offer myself as a service uh where like just let authors hire me to just come nitpick all their stuff. Because uh, <laughs> uh even like doing this, I'll go to research authors and uh you, you go to like their website and uh their blog posts all just say this is a sample blog post. This is a sample blog post. It's like, <laughs> oh no. no. Yeah. And stuff like that. So, um, uh, it, yes, you never know. Uh, cause even though that's the thing, no matter how often you take a look at that stuff, just, you do it long enough, you're going to miss things and yeah. it you, hopefully just someone's nice and lets you know, instead of just, you know, going on about their day or leaving you a terrible review somewhere. So, uh, all right. So I had the pleasure of uh, being mentored briefly by one of my heroes, uh, author by the name of John Hartness. And uh, he talks about how no matter how quickly he writes, he cannot write as fast as people read. And so because of that, authors should always be supporting each other, you know, helping each other out. So to that end, two-part question, who is your author hero? And who is an author that you think that we should be checking out that maybe we aren't? Oh, okay. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to have to say my author hero, I guess as a role model is what you mean. Um, yeah. I, I guess Linda Howard, she's a member of my Heart of Dixie fiction writers group. And I've known her now for like 15 or so years and I just watch how she handles herself and handles her um, career. And I try to emulate her in that way. Yeah. Cause she's a, she's a New York times bestselling author and has written in just about every subgenre there is. Yeah. <laughs> out there. So yeah, I think, I think I'd have to go with her as my role model. I try and try and keep a even keel and stay on top of things just like she does. Yeah. Um, as for an author, you might want to check out that maybe you haven't. Um, I know so many authors; it's very hard to. Choose. No, it, it, it is, and um, you know, if you want to list off a couple, that's fine. I'm not. <laughs> I'm okay. not that strict on this, so just just say what you want to say, and it's it's all good. Um, well, I know that um, I really liked. Uh, can't, can't think of her first name. Her last name is Lovelace. Um, I can't think of her first name. I really liked her work, and I really like. Um, there's a new author out, Leslie Scott. She's got mm-hmm. some contemporary romances that are really fun and and um, flirty kind of reads. So I mean, there's just there's just so many. Oh yeah. Um, one way to get a sampling, if, if anybody's interested, I'm not trying to like make anybody go buy something, but we just my heart of Dixie group just. Um, released an anthology called What a Day, short stories by Southern authors, where we each wrote about a 5,000 word short story about a special day in a character's life. And it's all different um, time periods, uh, genres, you know, mo- some of them have ghosts, which is whatever, you know, kind of thing, but some are just contemporary romances and, and it's a variety. It's a variety. Yeah. Um, you said you have you have a music background. One of them is set uh, at a at a blues festival, and I don't know the character well enough to tell you what the special um, 
he refers to the author is uh, Tom Winstead, and he refers to uh, a famous musician that I'm not in the music background, <laughs> so yeah. I don't remember the guy's name. But anyway, you might enjoy that story, though. Okay, yeah. If you, and, if no, you please, up. please, everyone, go out and buy that. Like, just, just, I, I, I hope at this point, if you're still listening to this podcast, I hope that you're going out and buying all of these authors' books. Uh, all the time, uh, please give them all your money uh, so that we can, so that then we can all, you know, just do this full time and just, you know, write and do podcasts and just, uh, you know, provide you with all the content that you want. But for us to provide that content, it's going to take some money. So <laughs> please, please go out, rush out. Don't, don't walk, run to Amazon. I'm guessing we can get this on Amazon. Um, no, I would not go to Amazon. They, they gave us a lot of grief because we didn't um, upload directly through, through Amazon's KDP. Uh, right. Uh, we went through draft to digital. Okay. Yeah. Draft to digital will split the royalties between us, uh, which Amazon mm. won't do. And so we, we wanted to have that convenience. Um, Amazon for about a month wouldn't even list the paperback. That like, that sounds very Amazon of them. It it does. Um, so no, Barnes and Noble has it. Um, you know, you can get you can get it digitally. You know, any of the typical ebook reader sites, Kobo, Apple, whichever. Yeah. Um, if you go if you go to my website bettybolty.com/books, it's listed there, and there's a link to um, the snail on the wall bookstore where you can order a paperback and she'll contact me and I'll sign it and send it to you. Oh, I, I love, <laughs> I love that name. So yes. Yeah, isn't that a cool name? Yeah. So, I mean, there are, okay. there are different ways you can get a copy of it. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's really good to know. That's something that I've been uh, at this point, you know, I, I've been networking with so many authors for so long now, and there's just a few that we we've talked about, you know, over the past couple of years about, you know, we really should do that anthology together, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just always think about the logistics of trying to do that through Amazon. It's like, Oh God, I do not want to have to sit there and track those sales separately, pull that money out of my account separately. You know, it's just such a, such a to do, but yes. I wasn't aware that drafted digital, you could do that. And that's, that's a, for those of you out there who are thinking about doing an anthology, uh, here's a tip <laughs> draft a digital will split the royalties for you so that's yeah. that's yeah. As, uh, long, as long as everybody that every all the authors in the anthology have to have an account with draft to digital but that's free to set up yeah and and then they'll they will split it you know whoever the lead author is that's coordinating it does all the uploading and everything and just lists all the other authors and then they can they manage the royalties from there betty you don't know it but you just made like my month because <laughs> that that i've really like that's been holding me back on this and it's one of those like it, it wasn't as pressing of a project that i was like trying to figure out workarounds for it yet but it was something mm-hmm. that i was just man i really want to do this but my my experience currently is just using kdp um because i i haven't gone wide yet um right although that that is coming in the Soon, sooner rather than later, because again, like the aforementioned problems with Amazon, um, it's it's dangerous to have all your eggs in one basket. So it, it it is, and I'm I'm not convinced that Amazon isn't actively working against 
me. <laughs> yeah. I don't I mean I don't mean that like in targeting me, but because I don't write for one of their imprints and I'm not one of the big five publishers. Yeah. That they they uh, discount, you know, they they um when you it, here's here's the thing. I went and looked up a friend's books. I went I put her name in the search at Amazon and nothing came up with her books. She has four or five of them at Amazon. Yeah. None, none of them came up. So I put in one of the titles of the books. It didn't come up. Mm-hmm. I finally put in the series title and then I could see her books. I literally now, had that problem today. Uh, I was doing research on another author that I'm going to be interviewing right. and put in, put in their fairly distinctive name. Uh, nothing came up, put in book title, nothing came up, put in name and book title, nothing came up. It was only by clicking their link through their I was like, well, maybe they're not, maybe I was confused. Maybe they're not on Amazon. And when I went to their website and clicked, you know, you can get it here. um, That was the only way I found it. And see, that's what I mean by, I think Amazon is actively working against us, (laughs) you know? Yeah. They, they don't, um, the algorithm um, pulls the Amazon imprints first. I believe I don't have any evidence of this, but given that kind of, you know, result when you put the author name in and nothing comes up, it's like, wait, yeah, you know, what is happening here? So yeah, I'm, I have been wide all along and I only have my books up at Amazon because there are so many people who will only buy through Amazon. So I have them there. I really wish I didn't need to. (laughs) Right. Well, and um, something that I've come to wonder is the people that I have the most trouble finding, um, a lot of them are wide. Uh, and so I, I have not had anyone report that they've had trouble finding my books, but I'm still enrolled in Kindle Unlimited. I'm still Amazon exclusive. Yeah, right. And so. I, it makes me wonder if, you know, not if, but when I unenroll from Kindle Unlimited and go wide, will I start running into these problems? Because at this point, I'm not exclusive to them. Do they no longer care about me? You know? Right. It, it, it's a worry. And that's the, the, the thing is, there's no transparency from Amazon. Uh, no, no. And, no. and good luck getting someone on the phone either, you know? And if you do, it's not like they're going to tell you anything useful. Oof. Right. I could, I could get on the soapbox for Amazon and we could talk for hours just complaining. Uh, yes, we could. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we could. So, and and the, the other site for like paperbacks is bookshop.org. Have you tried? Have you, um, no, I, I, I'm you, not familiar. But they, I'd love to hear about it. They opened up. This is I'm not. I'm just. I have my books up. I have a page up there where I have my books listed. Um, they they bill themselves as competitor to Amazon, and the money that they make from selling books, mainly paperbacks. They don't do the ebooks so much because they they buy the paperback and they send it to the people, and the money they make from that process they divide up and give to independent bookstores across the country Love to help it. keep them afloat Love so it. that they can provide competition to Amazon. Yeah. Oh, I, I love every bit of that. Uh, we're, we're lucky in my area for being somewhat a little backwards. Um, we've got a couple of great uh, indie bookstores in the area. Uh, mm-hmm. Sweet home books and uh, with Tomka and uh, uh red herring in Montgomery. Um, but the, 
I would love it if every town in Alabama had a bookstore, you know, that that's, that's the dream and preferably selling yeah. my books, you know, that's, yes. that's the real dream. <laughs> that's the real dream. There was a, I was fortunate when I released my last book, Fractured Crystals, when it came out, oh, when did it come out? Last October, I did the book launch from an um, used bookstore. Well, it's a small bookstore, mainly used books, but they also did some new books and they were actually kind enough to set up a display of, they ordered in some of my books and had a display in the front window. And I did a, a reading from yeah. there of the book that I was releasing. So that was pretty cool. That was, yeah. that was good. I was sad to hear though, that the, the small bookstore, independent bookstore in Decatur closed just this past year. They couldn't stay afloat. So we we lost our uh, COVID killed off our, we had a place called trade in books. That was a, uh, you could trade in your used books for store credit. And they had just shelf upon shelf upon shelf of other used books. And it was great. Um, But COVID uh, it went under during COVID. Um, And I've had, I've had mixed results with our local bookstore. So my series is, um, uh, very urban fantasy. It's about a redneck wizard with a crippling meth addiction. <laughs> and, uh, so I went to sweet home books and was like, Hey, I don't know. Do y'all carry, you know, books by local authors? And she's like, yes, if I can order it through Ingram spark, uh, I, I will happily carry it. And, uh, so she was able to order it, got a couple copies in. She, she was great. Um, you know, just sight on the scene. Like she didn't need to know. She's like, look, you're a local author. I want to help you. Let's do this. And then I went to, to, to red herring and red herring is a bookstore. Um, but it's, um, it, it was attached to new South publishing, which is a publisher that primarily publishes, uh, kind of like historical stuff about Alabama. And okay. so the, the bookstore itself, while it does carry some, you know, new releases and things like that, uh, you know, general fiction, it primarily carries stuff about, uh, like Alabama history and things of that nature. And so I went to them to ask, Hey, do y'all carry local author stuff? Oh yeah. We carry a ton of local author stuff. What, what's your book? And, uh, I told them and they looked it up and the guy was like, huh? Yeah. I just don't know that that's quite the fit for this bookstore. (laughs) And I was like, man, I, I get that. No harm, no foul. I totally understand. I'm not really the the target market that you're trying that you're trying to reach here. I just I just thought I'd ask, you know. And 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 authors don't be afraid to ask, you know. Just get out there. And what's the worst you're going to say? No, you know. It's not like they're going to throw rocks at you or anything. <laughs> just they'll say no. You'll go on, and uh, you'll find another bookstore. They'll carry your stuff. It'll be great. It'll be fine. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, So, yeah. So let's wrap things up just real quick. Why don't you tell everyone where can they find you and your books? Um, You can go to my website, bettybolte.com and you'll, you can find out more about me, other interviews I've done um, where I'm going to be next and all of my books. There are excerpts there. You can read, there are links that you can buy them with and I don't know. There's, there's, uh, that's, that's the one-stop shop is Betty yeah. Bolte um, for all, everything Betty Bolte. And um, you can sign up for my newsletter. You can get to my blog where I talk about the research I've done. And right now I'm doing a historical fiction around the world about 
authors from other countries other than the U.S. that write historical fiction. And just trying to see how, what is similar and what is different between American written historical fiction and other countries, you know, yeah. from other nationalities. So it's been interesting. Uh, yeah. I wanted to say, I actually had this written down as a note that uh, to give kudos, you know, talking early about like, we should always be supporting other authors. Like you, your blog has a ton of author interviews and things like that. You know, your blog is not just, Oh, look at what I did. You know, here's the latest thing about me. It, you really do kind of share the spotlight around with a ton of other authors. And that's, you know, that's exactly what I feel like every author should be doing. Yep. For the last several years, uh, my Friday blog has been dedicated to either an author interview or a character interview, and then the, uh, the featuring one of the works of the author. And yeah. that is my way of giving back. So, because yeah. I mean, I, I will tell you that I'm, when I look at the stats for my blog, it'll show me who's searched on, you know, it's not just like when I post it that people see it because they've subscribed to my blog. There are, there are search engines that people have put in the keywords and come to my blog yeah. to see, to see the other authors that that's what they come up to, or they see, you know, some of my blogs. One of them is about how to, choosing which finger to wear a ring on. Cause that was part of when I was writing um, in my contemporary paranormal switches and ghosts yet again, that's the secrets of Roseville series. The le- very last book in that one, the um, the couple has to assemble a charm bracelet in order to uh, find out what their true destiny is. And mm. there was there's a secret um, coven of witches involved. And I wanted to figure out which ring they would wear their membership ring on. I'm oh. sorry, which finger they'd wear their membership ring, which one made the most sense. I was doing research as to what stone, what metal, you know, trying to make it all tie together for this mystical group and everything. And that blog post is the one that gets searched on. I don't know what, I don't know what the key keywords are that they're putting in, but when it comes to a search engine thing, which finger to wear a ring on choosing which finger to wear a ring on. It's like, okay, that's interesting to me, you know? So Uh, I love that. And that's something like, um, you know, talk about like giving back. Like if you're, if you're a writer out there that's struggling, like seriously, I, I have yet to encounter an author that's got books out there that is not quick to be like, Oh yeah, I'll definitely talk to you. Let's, you know, I, I've got tons of advice to give here are all my mistakes. Don't do those. You know, uh, <laughs> authors exactly. love helping other authors. So don't never be and pretty much every author I've seen has a contact form on their website. Just drop them a quick line. Like, hey, you know, do you have a second to, you know, I got this question. Could you, could you help me out? And uh, I mean, I've, I've done it before and I know countless other authors that are like, yes, I, I, yeah, I've got a second. Let me help you out. So the only, th- the only thing I would caution is that, because you know, this has happened to me now several times, uh, don't write to somebody to an author and say, "Will you look at my manuscript?" Oh yeah, no, one hundred percent. No, yeah, don't do that. Net, really, just don't ask anyone to read your manuscript that you have not built some sort of relationship with. And I don't mean like, oh, they're your friend or something like that, but like that you know, you need to be active in the community where these people are. You need to show that you're also reading works. Don't just Hey, uh, you know, guy, come read my, come read my thing. No, 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 no. Like be Mm -hmm. active in the community, pay your dues. And then people will, 
will happily come read your stuff and not feel obligated. Um, and yeah, I, I will, I will read manuscripts for people, but they're people that I have built a relationship with. I'm not going to read it's somebody I know. Yes. Yeah. So mm -hmm. no, and in fact, you know, as, as far as getting into the community, one of those way, one of the ways to do that is to join different organizations. You know, there are different, you know, like there's romance writers of America, there's the author's guild, there's, um, mystery and sci-fi is that yep. what is it called Har there's horror writers of america horror uh, writers. yeah um so you know find your tribe people and <laughs> yeah start make making friends with the with other writers that write the same kind of thing and then eventually you can ask them to read for you but you know yeah. just don't do it out of the blue that's all right and like uh you were talking earlier about like your accountability group uh i joined uh sometime back i joined a facebook group called the writing tribe and they, you know, I think it's uh, like four times a week, they organize uh, like a Zoom call where it's, okay, we're doing writing sprints. You know, it's going to be uh, 30 minutes and then we'll hold each other, everyone accountable and talk about like how we did. And then, okay, cool. Now let's do another 30 minute sprint, you know? Right. And, and, but it's, and it's through that, that I have made uh, a lot of connections, you know, because of that, you know, I've been invited on other podcasts, other, other things like that, just because I I'm in the community. I I'm giving more than I'm taking and people see that. So then when I do ask for help, people are quick to jump. So, uh, exactly. the, yeah. And so find your tribe is 100% probably the best advice that could be given because they'll, they'll walk you through every step of the way uh, over the long term. So, all right. Well, this has been fantastic. Uh, you've been uh, a, gr a great interview. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, I tell the authors the plan is hopefully sometime next year, we'll do a follow-up with uh, authors who have the time. Uh, won't be as long, but let's a quick little check in, see what books you have come out with. So hopefully we'll be able to sync up and make that happen. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. And so, all right, uh, guys, till next time, y'all be good now. Thank you for taking the time to check out another exciting episode of Southern Fried Fantasy. If you would. You know the drill. Give us a like, subscribe, follow, all that jazz. We'll appreciate you. Until next time, y'all. is part of the Tales by Bob network. To see all our great shows, go to talesbybob.com.